There's something about this that's like... Well, it's like... You're expecting a, a letter that you're just crazy to get. And you hang around the front door for fear you might not hear him ring. You never realize that he always rings twice. Ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Your dad died so young when you were just, what was it, three? Uh, six and a half. Oh, my gosh. Before, you know, your dad's legacy, as growing up as a child, did you know that your dad did something different than everybody else's parents? Oh, yeah. We had a projector. Someone gave us a projector. So we watched Daddy all the time. When we were about 12 or 13 and we started to socialize, me and my brother would invite friends over and we would watch him. And we'd watch his movies over and over and over again. And I would always cry at the end, and I would always be so sad. But I remember very well the day that my father died, and for some reason it's imprinted in my brain, that whole event that took place. It just changed everything for me. It really messed me up a lot. It really affected me deeply. I was always told about him and so many people knew who he was and idolized him, especially for the way he handled himself during the blacklist. I heard from many people about that. My mother stayed around actors all the time because she then ended up marrying a man who was a motion picture lawyer. So he had a lot of clients who were actors and friends of my father. So I was always hearing about him and everything. So if I wasn't seeing him in a movie... I was hearing about him or looking at pictures or missing him. So that was my relationship with him. Not very long, and my fondest memory is when he took me to Central Park to the merry-go-round, and he took me boating in Central Park. And I remember that very, very vividly and how handsome he was. I am in agreement with you on all of that. (laughs) (laughs) I know you are. Do you remember the first movie that you saw of his? Body and Soul, over and over and over again. I would say that one was our favorite, and I think it was his best film because he did so much work, transformation in that as an actor. That was definitely his best film as an actor because he changed, transformed from a, a kid from the streets who was just a rough housing kid which is what he was, to a very sophisticated man who had to make a choice of integrity or not integrity. He chose the integrity choice. So I always associated that with him and what had happened to him later on, you know, when he was given this option of naming names of his friends and wouldn't do it. And I was always taught that he was a hero because of that. Did I answer that question? I think you did, yeah, yeah. And that's what's always interesting. I was I was just telling somebody about this. I was watching, I think it was like Flowing Gold or one of the smaller films that he did. And several of his movies were films about integrity versus the man, quote unquote. And there were so many movies where mortality was discussed and his characters would acknowledge that he was doomed to die young. And it feels very prophetic. 
considering what it does we, feel very prophetic, yeah. Right, and I was carrying the banner of his legacy and having to discuss his film. Do you see certain themes pop up in his work that he probably didn't foresee at the time? Oh, absolutely. Like, especially in Body and Soul. Mm-hmm. It was just uncanny in Body and Soul because here's this guy, you know, he's from the street. He's a tough kid. That's my father. That was his childhood. And then he becomes well-known and successful. And then he has to make that choice between naming names or not naming names. But in that case, it was throwing the fight or not throwing the fight. Absolutely uncanny. And then, of course, at the end, he says, what are you going to do? Kill me, everybody dies. And, of course, that's what he did with the FBI. He said, no, I'm not going to tell you about my wife and fuck you. It's very weird and uncanny. It's been interesting to look at the government now, and we're still talking about you act in different ways and the blacklist. How do you look at that time now with the way things are right now? It's a good question. I'm horrified, absolutely horrified. I feel like nobody's learned anything, and the man that is our president is just a horrible man. I'm just horrified with what's going on in our country right now and what's going on in our supposed democracy. It just makes me sick, and I'm scared, too. I feel really scared. I feel scared for my brother's got a son who I'm very close with him and his kids. They're so cute. What kind of a future do they have? I don't know. In this country, it's like we're so close to the end of the world because we have the power to destroy it, and we are destroying it. And I'm afraid that one day somebody's going to drop a nuclear bomb on somebody. I mean, ultimately... It just seems like it's going to happen. I hate to sound like that, but I I think it's very sad. I feel this terrible sense of doom. To go off of that, I've only read about HUAC through other written items that that are out there. And after the fallout of what happened to your dad, that there was a lot of, especially from Hollywood, this regret at the same time about how tragic it was, how sad it was, but at the same time, There were no people that necessarily were standing up at the time to say anything about how wrong it was. What was it like growing up in the midst of that fallout? After it happened, you know, after he died, it was just such a shocking experience. I was so sad. It just changed everything about me. I just wasn't a happy little girl anymore. I put on weight. I had terrible nightmares. I had a lot of psychological problems. I was afraid all the time. I couldn't sleep. And this went on for... Oh, most of my life was just really tormented human being. I was a very gifted, tormented human being, and it just formed everything about me. It's like it put this huge heartbreak in me, and that never left me until a short time ago, until I found out what I really wanted to be and what I really wanted to do. And it just affected everything I did as an actress. It made me uptight and self-conscious. Instead of taking it and using it the way some people can do, like Jane Fonda, I mean, she's Mm -hmm. been so incredible. I wasn't able to do that. It just affected me so badly. So another thing is I was blocked about finding out uh, more about it and maybe using it or writing about it because I was taught that you're not supposed to do that. That's like selling out. You don't sell out. So I was taught, oh, you can't do that. You can't ride on somebody's coattail. You have to do it on your own. So I was proud about all that and my brother too. And that was stupid. 
because I would have had an easier time if I hadn't been like that, but that's the way I was taught, so. What I think it's lost in this story is your mom. I've read both the John Garfield biographies that exist and the relationship between your parents. They knew each other for so long. It sounds so romantic to hear. And what was your mother like as a person? Oh, she was fantastic. Really smart. Even though she had not gone to college, she was funny gorgeous, hilarious. She had an incredible sense of humor. She swore like a sailor. <laughs> she was compassionate. She was just fantastic. And I think she was also very guilt-ridden about what had happened to him. She had been very briefly a member of the Communist Party, mm -hmm. and they were really going after her through him. And he refused to acknowledge this when finally they brought him down to FBI headquarters and they showed him some kind of canceled check she had written for some cause. And, and she had been a member of the Communist Party for about one second. They wanted him to just admit that. And he basically said, fuck you. You know, I'm not going to talk about my wife. My mother, her mother's best friend, was killed in the Triangle Fire. Oh, my gosh. She jumped to her death in the Triangle Fire. And my parents were avid but about unions, labor unions. And in those days, like a labor union was like a really way out leftist thing. Right. You know? So my mother was very involved in that politically at the time as a young woman. She would go on demonstrations. This was after the Triangle Fire because those poor women didn't have a union, you know, and they didn't have hours. She was a very, very involved in that, being active in that. And I think that's also what turned my father on to her because she was so smart that way and he wasn't at all that way. You know, my father was more like not an intellectual person, so he admired her intellect. She had a lot of that. The fact that she was an activist and really cared about things like that, really, he loved that about her. And it was great, a great thing about her. But then it's it's all a question of what you're going to do with that. And she didn't end up doing anything with it in her own life. And I think she was frustrated because of that. And, you know, in those days, women married men and they became their wives and they raised the children. They didn't have careers. And I think she got trapped in that thing. A lot of women did. I think she led a frustrated life because of that because she didn't end up doing anything, really, except being a mother, which is a lot. But still, it's not enough. Right, right. You have that personal autonomy versus the family. It's it's something that I talk about a lot when I look at actresses and their relationship and the golden age of Hollywood with their children, which is usually very fractious because there was that societal expectation, which they right. couldn't really cope with. Your parents dealt with a lot even before this. You lost a sister as well. The hits just kept on coming even before all of this. Yeah. Losing my sister... It was the reason I was born and made and everything. They kept it secret for me for a long time. It was the most horrible thing that ever happened to her. It was so horrible. The way she died and everything. She died in my mother's arms. Oh my she God. had an asthmatic attack, and they didn't know what that was, really. And mm -hmm. by the time she got to my parents' house, because she was visiting a friend of my parents, she was almost dead and then died in my mother's arms. So it was a really traumatic death. And my mother was never the same after that. And my poor brother, he was a little baby, and he was in the house when it happened. So I think it really messed him up, too. That was the beginning of the end of everything when my sister died. Because not soon after, this whole thing started with the communist right. stuff, and it just sort of went worse and worse. 
And looking at your dad's career as a film viewer and how do you look at his career? What's always frustrating to me is that I hear so many older actors cite him as an influence. And yet he struggled with that whole concept of making movies he wanted to make versus making right. what the studio wanted him right. to make. Right. You know, how do you look at his legacy and, and the films that he made in, in such a short time? Oh, I, I just think it's really sad that he didn't get to make better movies. He made so many awful films. And really, the best films that he ever made were the ones that he produced. They were really the best ones. He missed out on doing Golden Boy. He missed out on doing Golden Boy on the stage. There were those films, Body and Soul, Breaking Point, Postman Always Rings Twice, of course, that was a loan out. The way the studios controlled people's careers, even, he was so frustrated by doing all those crappy prison break movies. And he did a whole bunch of them. And one of the best movies he made, actually, that a lot of people have not seen is Pride of the Marines. Did you yeah, see it? I have. I have seen that oh movie. Oh, my God. How did you see it? TCM. Really? Yeah, they showed it, I want to say, on Veterans Day. Oh, my God, I didn't know that. Yeah, they show it every now and then. I've seen it a couple of times. It does air on there. Oh, wow. My friends who made the documentary about my father had so much trouble with that film, so much trouble getting it out, trying to get it out there. And it's so complicated. Who owned what? Mm -hmm. Who owned this? Who owned that? Who would loan this? Who would permission? All this stuff. I think he had a really frustrated career at the end, finally made some good movies, and then was punished for it. For taking his own career into his own hands, he was punished for that by the studios because they didn't like that at all. And my mother always said that there was a big meeting about that because they were interested during the blacklist. They were very interested in three people, Daddy, Edward G. Robinson, and Danny Kay. Mm -hmm. They all three were very liberal and had very liberal ideas about things, and they were called left-wing, ha, 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 so silly now. They were called left-wing, possibly communists, possibly members of the Communist Party, and they decided on Daddy as the one to go after, as the one not to protect, because he'd started his own film company, and that was a big threat to them, the idea that an actor would start their own film company. So I think they just decided that they would give him up, that they would just say, take him. And Mommy always said that there was actually a meeting when they decided this. Oh, my gosh. It was Edward G. Robinson, Daddy Kay, and Daddy. And that they just said, okay, take Garfield, because he had started his own film company, and they were so threatened by that. What I know Lauren Bacall has talked about in her autobiography about how Bogart was looked at a little bit askance when they were coming out about HUAC in the late 40s. They wanted to speak out more, but then they worried about their own career, so they stepped back. And it's always frustrating to read stuff about that, about how there was this contingent of people who said how wrong it was, but then they worried about their own career, and then they just decided to not say anything at the time. It's always very frustrating to me to read stuff like that. I'm like, where was all of this we need to band together thing before? You know, everybody talks about it in hindsight now. Right. I think Daddy was at a huge disadvantage because of the fact that he didn't really have an education. I mean, he, he was a, a street kid. This guy was interested in him in high school. He was the one that channeled his talent, saw that he had talent. But he was not an educated kid, and I think he always 
probably didn't know how to protect himself in the right way because the man that he decided to have his films produced by was this guy, Robert Roberts, Bob Roberts, who ripped him off and ended up escaping to France with most of the money and the production company folded. And I don't even know the circumstances under what that was, but Daddy was not an intellectual. My mother was the intellectual, and Daddy was a very intuitive, passionate guy, and it was all about acting, and that was it. Acting was his passion, his love, and that's all he wanted to do. So I don't think he looked very carefully at things he was signing, and if you went up into the, to him in the street, would you sign this petition? Of course he would sign the petition. He always wanted to help the little guy, and I think he signed a lot of things that he shouldn't have signed. And also, I think that Hoover was really after him, and I think now that the head of the FBI, the repressed homosexual, who must have had a huge crush on Daddy because he had all this information on him that he had gathered. I've just heard about this through someone who's hopefully going to write a screenplay about this. She's a brilliant young woman, and... She said, Julie, have you ever seen all of the stuff that Hoover had on your father? And I said, no, I haven't. And she said, you would not believe it. There are pages and pages of it. He was so out to get my father. I think he was out to get his own homosexuality because he was so homosexual. You were not allowed to be that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why he went after Daddy, because he went after that part of himself that he despised they're still releasing, I think, confidential files from HUAC subjects now in 2020. I think a lot of stuff is just only now becoming unredacted, which is insane that it takes that long, even with the Freedom of Information Act. And I know that you've talked about the last film he did, he ran all the way, and I still need to watch it because I have not seen it. Can you talk about that last film specifically? Because it was from what I had read, something that he did want to make, but there was so many personal struggles off screen with UAC and all of that, and Shelly Winters being Shelly Winters, and it was very difficult to make and to get out there. Oh, my God. Shelly Winters drove everybody nuts, by yes. the way. I mean, she was <laughs> such an erotic. She just wanted to go to bed with him so badly. She was after him. She was a nut. Zach Barry was being blacklisted. All Everybody involved in that movie was being blacklisted. That was the strangest thing, that movie. It was like exactly what happened to him. He ends up dying, and they all go after him. He's a bad guy in that movie. I mean, he's really a bad guy, but he's also a good guy. He uh, had a lot of problems when he was shooting that movie because he had heart problems. He wanted very much to do his own stunts, and they didn't want to let him. From what I heard, Apparently, everybody involved in that film was being blacklisted in one way or another, about to be blacklisted. The movie is about this guy, and he says, I don't feel like it's a lucky day for me. It's not a lucky day for me. Norman Lloyd is trying to get him to do this thing, and, and he says, I don't have luck today. You know, I just don't have luck. And it's like, it's just like some strange, odd thing where he ends up being the bad guy who's really not so bad, but he's bad, and then he ends up dying in the gutter. You have to see that one. It's really great. Because he doesn't actually really hurt anybody very badly in the movie, but it's just that whole dilemma where he never trusts her, he doesn't think she's going to get the escape car, and then she actually does get it, and when he realizes it, he drops dead. 
because he's been shot by the police. It's a very strange thing that he made that movie and then died after that, about a year after that, a year and a half. There are so many ones that I still have to watch, and tracking them down is sometimes hard because physical media is dying, which is very frustrating to me if you like movies made before 1983. I have no excuse not to see it. I will get to it. (laughs) Watching movies today, do you feel your dad's influence in acting today? So many actors cite him as somebody that they model on in the same way as like a James Dean or a Brando or the other method performers. Actually, no. Most acting is getting worse and worse and worse because they're doing so much of this television shit now. One series after another series after another series after another series. What I see is a lot of lazy, really bad actors. But somebody like Joe Kim Phoenix. Oh, yeah, Joaquin uh, Phoenix. Yeah, that's amazing performance. I always felt that Daddy was never given credit for being the first actor that worked the way he worked. And he worked so specifically so emotionally true, he had a problem because he was always so afraid that it would seem like he was lying. He didn't want to lie. He wanted to tell the truth. He wanted to be the truth. And when he was a younger actor, George Abbott, he was doing some play. He had a small part, and George Abbott was complaining about him because he would close his eyes because he was afraid that he wasn't being truthful. Right now, I'm having this really interesting experience because I'm about to do a solo exhibition of paintings in the fall and it's my first solo exhibition I've become a painter about 10 years ago this is probably the thing I always wanted to be and it took me that long for me to realize it and I'm doing this solo exhibition part of this going to be some paintings of daddy and I've been watching him very closely because I'm shooting screenshots for the paintings. I'm going to do some big paintings of him. What I watch is the way that he listens Mm -hmm. and the way that he takes something in. He's alive in every moment. And a lot of times you just don't see that anymore in actors. You don't see them working with their senses and working with that ability to listen and take something in, those reaction shots. I don't think that there are any actors today who even know who Daddy is. They don't mention him. De Niro and Pacino never gave him credit for his work. I don't know why. I know Marty Scorsese did because Marty Scorsese told me that Breaking Point was the reason he became... Not breaking point. It was force of evil was the reason he became a filmmaker in the first place was because he watched it on the million dollar movie every single day, all day long for a week. They would run the same movie. It was this thing called the million dollar movie. He told me that he watched it over and over and over and probably was the biggest influence on his life as a filmmaker. He told me that when I was doing Goodfellas. I actually was in Goodfellas. I don't know if you know. I did not know that. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. Oh, I played De Niro's wife. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Unfortunately, of the way they cut me, I mean, they just slaughtered my part. (laughs) But I played De Niro's wife. And I'm 
in a very funny scene with all the women. Oh, well, I'm going back now, and I'm going to have to rewatch it. Not that I don't need a reason to watch Scorsese movies. He brought up Force of Evil. I did an interview with, with Robert Dobby, one of my first interviews with an actor that I ever did, and I asked him about what classic movie he would recommend, and he recommended Force of Evil. Before, really? Yeah, this was before I knew who John Garfield was and became a crazy person who was, like, obsessed. And then I watched it, and I was like, oh, okay, I get it. Very weird that before all this, I was getting recommendations to watch it. That one seems to come up a lot. Well, Force of Evil, I spent the time with Marty doing Goodfellas, and I was on Goodfellas for a couple of months. She said, the reason I became a filmmaker was because of Force of Evil was because of your father and that movie. You know, he just loved my father so much. It was really great. You bring up something that I notice a lot when watching his movies, especially the romantic films. That's the thing that I miss in modern movies today that I love in classic films is that when he's playing in a romance, whether it's something like Out of the Fog or Postman, which is the de facto one, there's a romance and a chemistry there, and that's a time period where... You couldn't do anything other than maybe kiss, not like nowadays when you can pretty much do anything with an R rating, but there's far more romance and chemistry in, in his movies than I think you get in modern films. I agree. Yeah. Totally. You're so smart. <laughs> you are very smart. I watch a lot of movies and I think way too much. And is a biopic of your dad something that you love to see? Oh, my God, no, I would want it so badly, and it's such a great love story, too, because they were so in love with each other. They loved each other all through all of that shit that they went through, even at the end, and I think they would have gotten back together, too. They were separated when he right. died. It's a great love story, and I really tried to make it happen, but I wasn't very good at that. You know, I was very busy being an actress for a long time. I mean, I spent a lot of time being a very successful actress on and off Broadway in New York, I was very concentrated and focused on my career as an actress. I didn't ever think of, wow, I should do something about my father or I should meet people or I should talk to people. I never thought of doing that. I think it was because my mother, she didn't want that to happen. She wanted me to become a star like my father and I just wasn't cut out for it and my brother wasn't either. I didn't have the personality for it. I didn't like my privacy being invaded. When I suddenly become very well-known in New York City because I did this play and they were writing about me in all the newspapers and everything, calling me this great young actress, I nearly had a nervous breakdown. It was just not something that came naturally to me to want that or be that. He was so passionate about acting. He loved it so much. And it's such a great love story between the two of them. It would be a great movie. I was approached by, at one point, by the Mel Brooks company. Maybe they were interested. Then there was somebody else. Maybe they were interested. This guy, Robert Knott, wanted to write a book about Daddy. He wrote a book. It wasn't good. Now there's this young woman, and she has written this incredible piece about Daddy, and she's written it for Turner Classic Movies, for some book that they're putting out. And she is absolutely brilliant, and I'm hoping that she is going to write a screenplay about Daddy. The time is right. This girl has written something so brilliant. I mean, I wish I could share it with you. I can't share it yet. And all she really wanted to do is write about Daddy. 
she's just brilliant what she's written she's the only one and i think she could do it i really do but unfortunately there have been other people who've tried and they've made a mess out of it and yeah. one of them was me and i had a big connection when i was younger that i blew with a very bad script it just wasn't my thing but this is the person i think could do it and she's maybe it'll happen we'll maybe, see maybe yeah I mean, you are the keeper of his legacy at this point. What is pressure is that like for you? Uh, it's funny. There was a lot more pressure for me when I was young and I was an actress myself and for my brother, too. For my brother, it was so bad that he ended up killing himself. Well, he overdosed on heroin and morphine. For me, it was too sad. It was so sad. I couldn't use it in the right way. And now I finally think I can, which is to paint him. It's so strange. Here I am, I'm 74 years old, and I finally found myself. It was my first impulse, actually, was to be a painter. And I didn't follow that. Now, in the last 10 years, I've just thrown myself into this world. Here I am having a solo exhibition where they also want to honor my father, in this exhibition at Marist College, they're going to show some pictures of him, and then I'm going to paint him big. I've done some portraits of him that are really nice. One I sold to Alan Rohde, oh, who wrote wow, about, yeah. uh, you know I know, I know Alan, yeah. The other one is not sold yet, and that'll be in the show. But I'm going to do some big ones, about four by five feet, big portraits of him really excited about it. As a matter of fact, I've been just watching Postman Always Wings twice because I'm taking screenshots right now to use for the paintings, mm -hmm. and I'm really excited about doing this. I want them to be big black and white oil paintings. Uh. This is the way that I'm going to honor his legacy. Even though I was a great actress and everybody thought I was a great actress, I wasn't able to do it there. It wasn't my personality. I'm kind of a recluse. I can stay in a room and paint all day long by myself and then watch TV at night and then go to sleep and do the same thing all over again. It's not in my nature to have been famous and thin and wear beautiful clothes and let the camera photograph me. It just was not in my nature. And it only took me, what, 64 years to realize this. That's how I'm going to carry on his legacy with these paintings. i got to save my pennies now so that I can afford to have a, a Julie Garfield, John Garfield portrait in my room. You can see a couple of those portraits on my website, juliegarfield.com. They're on there. There's two of them on there. One of them is Alan Rohde's, and they're just regular-sized portraits. But these paintings are going to be huge. They're going to be four by five feet. Uh, I'm sure they're going to be amazing. Well, I hope so, God willing. I'm <laughs> going to have a little fear about doing such big paintings. I'm going to do it. Surprised that you have not come down for the film festival to talk about your dad. I really didn't want to do that. I did used to do a lot of that stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, I used to do these events. and But once I became a painter, I had enough of it. I really didn't want to go do it anymore. I just wanted to focus on my painting. That's what I wanted to do. Yeah, and, uh, separate. Yeah, I, that's you know, totally I'm not so great at that stuff, I don't think. Oh, I think this interview is proof that you are still awesome at that stuff. Oh, thank you. I said to Alan, I said, I don't want to do it anymore, Alan. I did one in California, then I did another one in, at the Academy. I did a John Garfield event there. They showed Body and Soul. 
then I did one in Santa Fe, and then I did you know, in Palm Beach. And I just came to this point where I just didn't want to do it anymore. I just wanted to focus on my painting. That was it. So I really did not encourage them to invite me there, and I really didn't want to be invited there. And I just don't do very well with that stuff. I mean, I've enjoyed doing it sometimes. It's not comfortable for me. I did a lot and forced myself to do it for years, and now I just don't do it anymore. I know we mentioned Body and Soul. Do you have a movie that is maybe something that people should seek out that they might not have seen that's not one of the big core ones that your dad did that's a favorite for you? Well, Breaking Point, nobody's seen. Yes, I have. It's great. How did you see it? TCM showed it once, and Criterion has it out on disc. Wow. I think I remember this now because I think I did an interview for them. It's a great, great movie. I think it's one of the best movies, American movies. That's the one. I think Body and Soul is my favorite. I love the breaking point because of the anti-racism thing thing that's in that film. Little black kid and he's standing alone on the wharf and he doesn't know that his father is dead. Nobody tells him. That was to me was that's so such ultimately. Such a heartbreaking moment. I like it better than To Have and Have Not, which is the original iteration. It's a much better film and so did Hemingway. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, it was his favorite because Patricia Neal told me she was very friendly with him. And I hung out with her for a while. She said that was the best one. Hemingway thought that was the only good film that had been made of something that he wrote. I'm the weirdo. I like the small little ones that most people definitely don't know. Four Daughters is great. That got him an Oscar nomination. He should have won that year, but, you know, I didn't get to pick the awards. My mom will tell you out of the fog. I've made everybody I know watch that one. Really? I love that one. I haven't watched that in so long. Oh, I love it. I I, I love Ida Lupino. I have to see that. Oh, it's great. It's great. I really like Saturday's Children. Nobody's seen that. Oh, my God. Well, see, that was the only time that he really did extreme character work. Mm-hmm. And he was a comedian. Yeah. You know, I mean, he was hilarious. It's such a light little domestic movie. Yeah. You wouldn't think that someone like him would be in it, but it works so well. You live in California, right? I do, yes. See, if you lived in New York, I would lend you the movie because I have the ball. Ah. Uh. 